I'm Bonnie Lin, director of the China Power Project and senior fellow for Asian security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's population management. After decades of growth, 2022 was the first year China's population fell in 60 years. What happened in China to get to this point? How have China's population controls impacted its demographics? And how might this turning point pose new challenges for China's society and economy? Here to discuss all these questions and more is Philip O'Keefe. He is professor of practice at the University of New South Wales Sydney Business School and director of the Aging Asia Research Hub at the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence in Population Aging Research. Prior to joining CPAR. Philip worked from 1993 to 2021 at the World Bank in Washington D.C., Beijing, New Delhi, Sydney, and Budapest. He worked in East Asia and Pacific, South Asia, and Eastern Europe and Central Asia regions. Most recently, as practice manager for social protection and jobs for the EAP region. So, Philip, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, the topic of our discussion today is Chinese demographics. So, Philip, I'd like to start with the question of why should we care about China's demographic changes? How important is demographics generally to a country's growth, development, and power? And specifically, why does it matter for China? Okay, well, I, I think you know, demographics matter for all countries at, at at all times, but particularly given the size of China, its its economic clout, etc. What we'll see is that the demographics of China, which are now the total population is shrinking, and the workforce has been shrinking for more than a decade now, or the share of the workforce, that will have impacts on China's economy, on its growth, and as we know, China's been such a driver of world growth that that will definitely impact the world economy. As part from the kind of global economy, it will have specific effects on other economies. So, for example, countries that export resources to China will. You know, obviously, you have less demand in future due to population change in China. But there'll be some positive effects also as China moves from a kind of period of abundant labour, cheap labour, to a new period of fewer workers, higher labour costs. That can have positive impacts for some of its neighbours who still have those advantages. You know, the Vietnams, the Bangladeshis, the Indonesias over time, and it may have positive effects for, on things like climate change, for example. You know, slowing the progress of climate change. But more generally, on the economic front, to the extent that demographics and they will impact China's、uh, economy negatively, that will impact things like strategic competition with the United States, which you know has a much more positive demographic profile in coming years, and other countries that that share you know the more the U.S. pattern of demographics. So it will certainly affect strategic competition across the world. If you think back to Japan in the eighties, and and you know how there there was a big kind of You know, fear of of Japan overtaking the states or becoming you know really a, a much stronger rival to the states. The way it's played out, I think demographics in Japan have been part of that story. That it hasn't played out as dramatically as one expected, and that may well be the case in China too. Overall, in the earlier days of China's、um, opening up period in the eighties and nineties, the demographic dividend, as they call it, so the increase in working age population, accounted for about fifteen to twenty five percent of China's per capita growth. So that's a you know pretty chunky contribution in a period of high growth. In contrast, if you go from the middle of the last decade to 2050, demographics will be reducing 
China's growth by about half to three quarters of percent a year. So that's you know significant economic impacts. If you look around the world and around the region, this is a pattern you see in other places. Um, the so-called East Asia miracle in many of China's neighbours. Demographics were a significant contributor to that growth period in from the 60s to you know, the 90s in, in those East, other East Asian countries, estimated between about a quarter and 40% of the growth was driven by the demographic change. So that demographics are important, but I think the other point to make is that a demographic dividend is not automatic and nor is a demographic you know, decline or, or its impacts on the economy automatic. So if you contrast East Asia where that demographic dividend was strong and it contributed to growth, that was supported by policies that really helped the countries realise that demographic dividend, open trade, human capital investments, education, etc. So they were able to realise and maximise that demographic dividend. Contrast it to a region like Latin America, very similar demographics from the 70s to the 90s, but saw much lower growth, really didn't maximise its demographic dividend because of policy. So it's important to say that you know, favourable demographics are positive for growth. Unfavourable demographics, as China's experiencing now, will you know, potentially harm growth. But policies and institutions really matter as to how strong those impacts both on the positive and the negative side are. Could you describe what China's current demographic situation is? You mentioned China's demographics is declining. And I read that India has now surpassed China as the world's most populous country. What do you see as the trajectory and how has China managed its population? Okay, well, this is a you know fascinating story, of course, and you know, made much more important by China's size. What you've seen from the foundation of the People's Republic, you had a population of about 540 million. Currently, you've got a population of about 1.4 billion. That started to decline on official statistics last year, about 850,000, and that decline will accelerate in overall population. The drivers of that were of that well firstly of that growth were partly longer life expectancy so that increased dramatically more than doubled in that period since the you know, formation of the people's republic but more importantly in terms of the recent dynamics it's the fertility rate in china that really is significant and and has attracted a lot of attention over the years with fertility policy so in the late 60s you had the average woman in china had about six and a half kids nowadays they probably have about 1.2 or perhaps even lower kids so you know that's well below the replacement rate for the population so that's what's now driving this decline in population. So that's overall population. The other thing, though, and in economic terms, even more importantly, it was about 2011 that the share of working age population in China peaked. So since then, you've seen a decline in the number of people of working age, productive, you know, most productive ages, and that decline will, will continue to accelerate. So they're, they're the basic kind of facts. In terms of population management policy, if you go back to, you know, Chairman Mao in the 50s, 60s, 70s. There's quite a debate about whether he was pronatalist or in favour of birth controls. And I think when you read scholars' work, you know there there are quotations they can cite in both directions. But I think it's clear that by the 60s, you you saw the beginning of what they call the Birth Planning Commission under the State Council in the mid 60s. Things like the first homegrown birth control pill at the same time. So you saw the beginnings of you know more obvious policy 
focus and concern with with population growth. The real shift happened, though, um, from the early 70s onwards and the fourth and fifth five-year plan. So they specifically introduced targets to reduce population growth at that time. And the policy was so-called later, longer, fewer. So have your babies later than you did before. Space the birthing longer. So the target was to have four years between births and have no more than two children in urban areas and three in rural areas. And there were penalties attached to this if if you didn't meet. We also saw in that period of the 70s, a large increase in kind of birth control operations. So things like abortions, IUD insertions, sterilization, et cetera. And so what you saw with this policy shift was a precipitous decline in the birth rate. 1970, about six kids per woman. By 1980, which is actually when the one-child policy started to be implemented, it had declined to 2.7 per woman. So whilst we talk a lot about the one-child policy, and I'll mention that in a moment, actually the biggest declines in birth rates happened prior to the formalization of the the one-child policy. You then get to 1979-80 when, when the one-child policy was introduced, and that was Deng Xiaoping and, and others focusing very much on per capita growth, quality of population, productivity, etc. Interestingly enough, in the first half of the 80s, the, the birth rate bounced around a bit. Marriages got a bit earlier, so that later part of the policy wasn't as effective. But from the second half of the 80s, you saw this steady further decline in the fertility rate. And you started to see other things that we now know in China, such as gender imbalance at birth. So China now, historically, in recent years, has had one of the most unbalanced gender balances at birth between boys and girls. There were some exceptions to the policy from the early or mid-80s or so. Rural families could have a second child if the first was a daughter. Ethnic minorities could have more than one child. But but in general, this one-child policy was, you know, increasingly strictly enforced. So if you're a civil servant or a public sector worker, you could lose your job if you went beyond your one child. Even if you weren't in that sector, there were more limited job prospects if you breached your your number of children. And the birth registration system, which is very important in China, the HUCO system, to which a lot of social benefits attach, it was very difficult to register a child, you know, a second child or, or a third child for some of those other people. Also, institutionally, the National Population Family Planning Commission, you know, became a, you know, an increasingly important and strong apparatus right down to the grassroots level. And you saw things like the performance rating system of local officials the birth rates in their areas became one of their KPIs for how their how their performance was assessed. So that you, know, you continue to see a steady decline, although I, I emphasize again that the, the biggest declines happened even prior to the introduction of the one-child policy. From 2013, and even before that, there was a lot of debate that it was time to change the policy. You saw some relaxation from 2013. If one of the parents was an only child, for example, you could have a second child. But then by 2016, it became officially a two-child policy, and in 2021, a three-child policy. You mentioned that a lot of the decline in China's population actually occurred before the implementation of the one-child policy. Do you see the rolling back of the one-child policy in 2013 and 2014 as occurring too late? 
How would you assess China's demographic situation since then? Well, I, I think, you know, with hindsight, and it's always easy with hindsight, it, it probably would have been preferable to, you know, reorient the policy earlier. And, you know, I think you know, it's no use crying over spilt milk there, but, uh, you know, that's certainly the case. Since then, you know, since these relaxations, you've not seen a rebound in, in fertility. So, you know, it's continued, if anything, to decline. So the reversal of the policy itself hasn't had a major change. In, in a way, that's not entirely surprising. If you look around the world, I mean, the best, the most effective forms of birth control tend not to be policy, but they're economic development and education, particularly women's education. You know, as countries get richer, as populations and particularly women get better educated, you see fertility rates fall around the world. And it's, it's, yeah, very difficult to, to reverse that. So if you look at, at China's neighbours, Thailand, for example, in 1980, when the, the one-child policy was introduced in China, had a significantly higher birth rate than China. It now has a fertility rate quite similar to China's. Korea had almost exactly the same rate as China at that time and now has the, one of the lowest birth rates in the world, uh, less than one child per woman. Singapore's 1.1 child per woman. So in, it's in a very low fertility neighborhood, China, Japan, Korea, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, Singapore. And you know, in, in that sense, it's not surprising that you haven't seen um, the rebound in, in fertility that you might have hoped for. And there's a variety of reasons for that, I, I think. The cost of raising children is, is a big one. There was a study um, last year or the year before of about 13 countries, and China was second only to Korea in the cost of raising a child relative to the, the incomes of the country. The second one is clearly gender relations. And if you look around the world, the more equal gender relations are, the more likely you are to be able to stabilise fertility. And, and certainly, I think that's a factor in the East Asian region and, and in China itself. The policies that China, apart from you know, shifting the cap to three children, it's now you know, quite more aggressively at the local level doing efforts to stimulate fertility. So baby bonuses, preferential housing, more maternity leave, uh, tax deductions, childcare subsidies, etc. And you know, at the national level, different government agencies have got this fertility-friendly society guidelines, as they call them. But so far, we don't see the fertility bounce, and if anything, we see a, a continued fertility decline. Now, COVID came in the middle of all that, so you know, one has to see how that plays out post-COVID. But if you look at the neighbours and you look around the region, I wouldn't be hugely optimistic that you're going to get a significant reversal in fertility behaviour. So, Philip, we've been talking about China's demographic decline. How would you put that in the context of some of the demographic shifts we've seen in other countries, for example, in Europe? How do you compare this rate of decline in China compared to these other countries? I think there are, there are two characteristics of China's situation that are really important. One is that this demographic transition to an ageing and then an aged society is happening much more quickly than it did historically in OECD countries now. The second thing is that it's happening at a much lower income, country income level than it did in those countries. So on the first one, China goes from being what they call an aging to an age society 
in about a 25-year period, so one generation, basically. That same transition in the United States took about 70 years, and in France took about 110 years. So what that means, I mean, it's, it's a statistic, but what it means is that in those other countries, you had time to make the kind of adjustments in pension systems, health systems, labor force behavior, employer attitudes, all those things that you need to think about. You had you know, several generations, three or four or five generations to adjust policy, to adjust societal expectations and that kind of thing. In China, you've got one generation to do that if you really want to turn things. And the kind of systems we're talking about, pension systems, healthcare systems, uh, labor market, labor force, they're things that don't change overnight. You know, They can take a couple of generations to fully transform. So the speed of things is one really important thing in China where it's at a disadvantage compared to countries that aged earlier than it did. The second thing is its income level at the point that it's doing this aging transition. If you think about the peak working age population in the United States and compare the income level of China to when it reached its peak working age share, that was about a quarter of the income level of the US. So again, that, that has a lot of implications. Your, your fiscal revenues are a lot smaller. Typically, the capacity of government is a lot lower and that kind of thing. So the situation and, and the, the tools you have to deal with this, whether they're public spending or, or other tools, are a lot more constrained because of the income level of the country compared to the US. And it's not just the US, that's true of Germany or the UK. China is aging at a much lower income level. They call it you know, getting, getting old before getting rich. Thank you. And those two points, Philip, as you mentioned, really highlight the challenge that China is facing. They do. And, and you know, I certainly don't want to make it sound easy. I, I think um, these are really tricky challenges. And there's very few countries who've had to navigate them at the speed that China will have to navigate them at. Korea was one, for example, and you see there 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 are real struggles with you know elderly poverty is very high in Korea. Korea's elderly suicide rate, for example, is probably the highest in the world. So there's a lot of social you know challenges that that come with changing these things quickly and changing the social contract quickly. And China, you know, China is in the, in the midst of grappling with this. Philip, I noticed you mentioned gender dynamics a couple of times. You first noted that the one-child policy and other population management policies have led to a significant gender imbalance in China. You also brought up that the generally more equal gender relations in a country, the more likely it is for the fertility rates of that country to stabilize. So in China, are we seeing a, uh, a type of dynamic where women don't want more children, but at the same time, when they do have children, they are preferring boys? Could you unpack this a bit? Right, right. Well, I mean, certainly China has currently, and it has had for you know, quite some time now, one of the most unbalanced birth ratios in the world. So, you know, more men than women. So for every 100 women born, currently you get about 111 men born. In countries that are considered, you know, much more gender equal, say the Nordic countries or, or those, that ratio tends to be about 100 to 104, 105. So naturally, 
there do tend to be more boys born in the world, but that ratio is, is quite pronounced in China. And that ratio has been even higher in the early 2000s in China. So you've got this issue of historically of so-called missing missing women. Now, that, that has two effects. One, it reflects, as you say, preferences, and they're not preferences that are confined to China, of course. They're number of their neighbours and other parts of the world, India and other countries, we see this. But also it means that you've got, you know, tens of millions of women who were not born in the last 20 or 30 years, who themselves might be, you know, sources of, of population growth and, and birth and, and whatever, looking into the future. So I, I think that there's definitely an impact there. How much of it is gender nowadays, the choices that couples are making, how much of that is gender relations and how much of that is pure cost calculations, you know, and how much it costs to raise a child and those financial pressures, I, I think it's it's hard to unpick. But uh, certainly I, I would say both factors are at work in China and, and both factors are, I would say, certainly at work in countries like Korea and Japan also. Korea, they talk about uh, women going on a baby strike. And certainly if you look at the Korean fertility rate, that appears to be the case. And some of that, I think, in, in the neighbours also is agenda factors and cost factors. Philip, you also mentioned earlier that the working age population in China peaked in 2011. And that decline will continue to accelerate with current fertility rates. What is the current ratio right now? And what does that mean in terms of how much each individual in China has to bear in terms of taking care of their elders? And what kind of pressure on the family structure are we seeing now in China? Okay. Well, yeah, as you mentioned, the share of the working age population peaked yeah, about, about 12 years ago. So what you see, I mean, when you talk about a, a falling population, that nearly always means an aging population. And that's certainly what China is seeing. It's a rapidly aging society. So if you look at the share of working age population, which is you know, typically measured 15 to 64 years old versus those who are older than that, China currently you know has about 14% in that older age group but by 2050 it will have about 30% in in of the population in that older age group and that's almost exactly the picture in Japan today so think of Japan now and we think of it as an elderly society and you know a large share of older people china will have exactly japan's demographic composition by by 2050 so that's a reflection of you know I mean, demographers would talk about the old age dependency ratio. In China, that bottomed out in 2010, 2011. So there are about three working age people to each older person. That's now moving up again, and it has been for the past decade or more. So probably by the 2040s or so, you'll be down to two working age people to one older person. And, and towards the end of the century, those numbers will, will come even, even closer together. So that old age dependency ratio certainly is is increasing sharply, and that's you know that's clearly a challenge for China in a, in a number of ways. Do you by chance have the uh, similar figures for what the dependency ratio looks like in the United States, just to give a comparison in terms of where China is now compared to the United States versus where the projections might be in twenty fifty for both countries? 
I don't have the the US ones to hand. What I can say though is that, firstly, the fertility rate in the states, which is a you know, really a driver of how quickly societies age, is notably higher than China. So it's one point six per woman. The overall population of the states will continue to increase out to 2050. So in this period that we see a significant decline in China of both total population and working age population, the states will be much steadier. Now, that's partly somewhat higher fertility, but it's also a big function of migration. And that's really a distinguishing feature. If you look at around the world and then you look at East Asia and China included, a big distinguishing thing of the demographic dynamics is that countries like US, Australia, Canada, and others you know, really get a, a significant ongoing boost to their population and their working age population from migration. In contrast, in East Asia, China, Korea, Japan, uh, Vietnam, you really have very, very modest inward migration. So that kind of demographic safety valve that the other countries have and the vibrancy that that brings to their economies is so far not really being exploited in, in the East Asian countries, including China. What other measures are there for China to address this declining population aside from migration? I've heard some suggestions that, uh, that maybe artificial intelligence can be used to substitute for some of the workers and help take care of the elderly? Is that something that you've seen being discussed or explored in China? I think it's certainly you know, around the world, but particularly in countries that are, that are aging rapidly and have these kind of demographic dynamics that China has. Automation and, and um, you know, artificial intelligence and the like is for sure an important direction to go. And China is certainly going already quite rapidly in that direction, you know, the robots and other things used in production, um, it's you know, becoming a powerhouse of AI development and that kind of thing. So it, it is going in that direction. Essentially, if you've got population shrinking, the incentives to invest in capital, in automation, in things like AI are, de are definitely um, important ones. Um, Darren Rasamoglu at MIT and, and some colleagues have looked at this around the world, and they found that you know you don't necessarily get the correlation of, of growth and uh, working age population decline. And they they speculate that automation is is one of the things here that you know automation steps up or is driven more rapidly by population decline. So certainly that's a direction that China is already pursuing and I'm sure will continue to pursue and will help mitigate some of these demographic effects. What are the implications of relying more on automation versus growing your population naturally? Are there any trade-offs? Look, I think you know, there's always an argument in, in countries that where populations continue to grow or working age populations continue to grow, there's always this kind of debate about whether AI or automation will take jobs and you, know, you end up with a big unemployment problem. I think even in those countries which have more positive demographics than China does, the evidence of that is is fairly weak. I mean, historically, when you know from the Industrial Revolution and and beyond, that hasn't been the case. That you know, 
automation, mechanisation, etc., have have led to job losses. So one would hope even in more promising settings that would also be the case and that you get different types of jobs for sure and you need new skills. So there are transitional issues there with people who have outdated skills or, or the like. But in aggregate, the picture is probably on balance, you know, not, not a negative one. In countries which have China's demographics, I think there's not even really so much the trade-off question. The attractions of investing more in automation as you have a shrinking labor force are clear. And you just what you need to focus on there is the complementarity between labor and and that capital investment that you get with automation and making sure that those things, you know, work in tandem as well as you possibly can. And that then involves things like reskilling the workforce with digital skills and and the like. To make sure that you know that they are able to realize the productivity gains of those investments in automation. Another issue associated with China's growing dependency ratio is the implications for China's social safety net, particularly when we look at how China is thinking about taking care of its elders. Could you talk a bit more about China's overall social safety net and what China is doing as it faces a declining population? Well, firstly, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there are there are real firstly there are significant fiscal risks from from this aging population so if you look at china's pension system there are various estimates of the increased um, financing burden of an aging population, but you know, between the IMF, World Bank and others, they estimate maybe an additional 3% of GDP or so over the coming couple of decades will need to be spent on China's pension system. So that's a, you know, that's a significant demographic pressure on China. Similarly, more on healthcare, although less so than in the pension space. I mean, they say the demographic increase will be about half a percent of GDP and then long-term care will be a further third to a half a percent of GDP. So overall, the fiscal burden might increase by four to five percent of GDP over the next 20 or 30 years. That's a big, you know, fiscal increase or a big fiscal pressure. China's not alone in this, of course. You know, a lot of European countries and others will will experience this. So you've got the fiscal risk. The second is that China's pension system as it is currently is very much a two-tier system. So if you're in the formal sector, civil servants or, or formal private sector, your pension is, you know, reasonably adequate in in old age. And about 40% of the Chinese labor force are in that kind of system. The rest of them, though, and that's informal sectors, rural sector, et cetera, have are in a different pension system, which provides a much, much more modest benefit at retirement, probably around 15 US dollars a month or, or thereabouts, which you can imagine in China it does not have a lot of purchasing power. It's an interesting dilemma in the pension system in China. On the one hand, the formal sector schemes are going to be creating this fiscal pressure. On the other hand, you still have a significant share of the labor force, probably a majority of the labor force, who are in this very modest scheme that really is not enough to protect them financially in old age. So it's juggling two competing factors there on the pension side. On the health side, the system is is reorienting, but it's it's a it's a struggle, and it's a struggle in other countries also to deal with this. Essentially, the key thing is how did they manage 
the rapid increase in non-communicable diseases, so cardiovascular, diabetes, you know, all, all those kind of things, rather than the traditional infectious or communicable diseases. To do that, and China is starting to focus on that, but they, they'll have to probably focus much more on prevention and management of those non-communicable diseases. And what that means is they've really got to continue to invest strongly in their primary care system. At the moment in China, there's an over-reliance on hospital care for all kinds of conditions. And that's a very costly way of treating people typically. Um, so there'll need to be this reorientation towards you know, stronger and better primary care, less reliance on hospital care to control the costs of this NCD epidemic that is particularly acute when you, you have an aging population. The other thing, of course, is that if you look at the prevention side of all that, things like taxes on alcohol, tobacco, and the things, the risk factors that, that drive non-communicable diseases will, will almost certainly have to increase also to delay the onset of non-communicable diseases so people live healthier for longer. The final one that you mentioned is care, long-term care. Historically in China and you know, most countries of the world, um, you know, informal care has, has been the primary source of support to people in their old age. That's clearly a challenged system now. It's challenged by demographics. If you, if you only have one child, you know, their capacity financially and, and emotionally and other things to support you is, is more, more limited. Um, so developing the system of long-term care is, is really important for China. Um, They've been working on this since probably for a decade or more now. I'd say they've been you know, really moving into this space in terms of developing formal long-term care systems. But it's very early days. Spending is, is, remains very modest. Easily the dominant method of care still remains informal care. In doing that, though, they, they don't want to kind of repeat the direction of the, the healthcare system by, you know, putting everybody into residential services, which again are, are expensive, firstly, and often are not what people want. They want to be ideally in their home or in their community. So in moving on long-term care, I think the emphasis, and China is doing this, but I think even more so over time on home and community-based care, aging in place, as they call it, will be, will be really, really essential. On the labour force side, if I, I could just add on that, there's probably not a lot you can do about what this demographic pattern looks like. Directly impacting fertility, as we mentioned before, I don't think you're going to get a lot of impact there. And even if you get some, it's going to be very modest. There's very, very few countries who've turned around this kind of demography, and even where they have, it's been a modest turnaround. They've never got back to kind of replacement rate of the population. So personally, I, I wouldn't focus quite so much attention directly on fertility. But if you look at the labour force, you need to look at firstly maximising the labour force participation of the existing working age population. So that's right across the life cycle maximising labour force participation of women, balancing um, family and work better, things like parental leave, childcare, elder care support, etc. At the other end of the spectrum, incentives for older workers to work longer, I think, need to be stronger. And you see this in neighbouring countries, ageing countries like Korea and 
Singapore and Japan. So some of that is things like retirement age, which is still fairly low in China. But then there's other things that many other things that you can do through the tax system uh, and other forms of incentives to incentivize older workers to work longer. And clearly that's going to be needed. Migration, I mentioned before, it would be highly desirable. But if you look around the region, my guess would be that's not going to be quite the the source of you know labor force supplementation that you've you've seen in other parts of the world. The second thing though on on the labor side, and you've mentioned some of it already, is productivity. You want more workers working, but you want the workers who are working to be more productive. That will involve you know deeper investments in education, human capital, not just at school age, but across the life cycle. So some of that will be things like more investment in early child development, but some of it will also be more investment in adult learning, learning during your working life, upskilling, reskilling, and that kind of thing. And so China has made a lot of progress in its education system, but I think it's going to have to continue to deepen that and broaden where it invests there in education across the life cycle to increase productivity. The second is automation. I think you mentioned that, and and that's certainly a, a route that they're pursuing and should and, and can continue to pursue. The third is um, taxes on labor. At the moment, to finance its social security systems, China has fairly, still has fairly high taxes on labor. And obviously, that's you know at the margin a disincentive to invest in workers rather than you know machinery and, and that kind of thing. So over time, rebalancing its tax mix between taxing labour and taxing general income and consumption, or you know uh, taxing property or, or other things, will will probably need to shift as well. Thank you, Philip, for this very comprehensive assessment. Given all the different ways that you outline China could do to mitigate the adverse impacts of its declining population, is it then correct to say that China isn't facing any significant or major near-term challenges from its demographic decline? I think, I mean, it's correct in the sense that there are these options for mitigation, and we've just discussed some of them. That said, though, you know, all countries. Have these options, and there are a lot of countries that are further along their demographic transition that are aged societies, who've had these options but haven't always been able to deliver on them. And that's partly because the politics of some of the reforms I mentioned are really tricky. Reforming pension systems anywhere in the world, raising retirement ages or things like that, is devilishly difficult to do. Yeah, we see that in France at the moment, and we see that in country after country. So similarly with healthcare, we know from you know from the United States, but the rest of us know in other countries as well. Changing healthcare systems, reorienting healthcare systems, is really tricky. Also, partly it's you know that these things have a path dependency of their own, there are vested interests, that kind of thing. So that that's not easy to do. So th- there's those kind of areas where we kind of have a reasonable idea what could be done, but the politics of it are are really difficult. Then there's other areas, say, like long-term care or some of these areas in the labor force where, again, the broad directions of what could be done or what, what should be done, I think people have a sense of. But, you know, there's very, very few developing countries, for example, who've got any 
robust system of formal long-term care. So with a lot of them, we just don't know. There are areas like that that, that we don't know really as well what the answer is or what the approach should be. China's doing a lot of experimentation in that area, a lot of um, subnational pilots at the moment in long-term care to try and learn lessons and, and think about that. So it's a bit of a mix, I think. I, I mean, my menu that I outlined before sounds you know, easy and just kind of tick them off, but, but by no means are any of these things either easy politically and in a number of cases I think are, are quite challenging technically as well. So just to make sure, what you're saying is, is that a more reasonable assessment is that China will experience continuous population decline moving forward. And even if China is successful to implement policies to decrease the rate of decline, it will probably take time for any of these policies to take effect. And the likely scenario is that we will still see decline in the coming decades. I think absolutely on the demographics, you'll continue to see decline because those people who are the workers of, you know, 2045 or 2050, they're born already. So we we know those numbers. We know that there will be by 2050 around 200 million fewer working age population people in China. That's locked in. So the demographics, I think, are probably the area where we will have the least uncertainty. It's a question of what you can do to, to mitigate those. I think, though, going back to those kind of GDP numbers at the beginning, what you've got is in the past demographics until, you know, a decade or so ago, demographics were a tailwind for China's growth. They were pressing it along and accelerating its growth. Since then, they've become a headwind and that headwind is only going to get stronger in, in current decades. And the exact impact of that on GDP, it's, you know, I mentioned the half to three quarters of a percent of GDP per year. We don't know exactly, but almost certainly those demographics will have a negative effect and will make it tougher to grow at the same rate than, than they have done in the past, where demographics were actually making it easier to grow faster for China. Great. Thank you very much, Philip, for this very comprehensive discussion of the range of factors impacting China's demographic growth and also the second and third order consequences, what that means for China's GDP, its economy, but also its general social system. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. 